summer to a new statue in Richmond, Virginia. In a city known for its Confederate monuments, the 10-foot-tall bronze statue to Maggie Lena Walker breaks the mold. It's the first one dedicated to a woman, and she was born to a formerly enslaved woman. I'm Sarah McConnell, and today on With Good Reason, the story behind the newest monument in the former capital of the Confederacy. Later in the show, we take a closer look at what a town's monuments and historic markers might really be saying about the past. Even people who have said on record, oh, we should get rid of Confederate monuments, they're not thinking of this. And yet, in its very subtle way, this does exactly the same thing as the big statue of Robert E. Lee. But first... Many of Richmond's Confederate monuments were erected after Reconstruction in the late 1800s and early 1900s. It was during that period that a black woman named Maggie Lena Walker became the first woman in the United States to charter a bank. She was also a teacher, a mother, an activist, and a businesswoman. Recently, Maggie was honored with her own statue in Richmond. Dr. Kalita Nichols Fairfax is an associate professor of social work at Norfolk State University and joins me to talk about the life and work of Maggie Walker. Kalita's statue was recently erected in downtown Richmond to the great black activist Maggie Walker. She was not only the first black woman president and founder of a bank, she's the first woman in America to be president and found a bank. Absolutely. Here's a woman who perhaps is in a generation of of my great-grandparents, born around 1864, 1865. Uh, Her parents were Elizabeth Draper, who was a woman who was enslaved, freed after the Civil War, and an Irish journalist named Eccles Cuthbert. So here's a woman born uh, into uh, an interracial union. Her parents were not married during the time. Her mother worked for the Van Loo's, for Elizabeth Van Loo. And Elizabeth Van Loo was a philanthropist in the city of Richmond. And uh, Maggie Walker uh, lived with her mother and uh, eventually her, her stepfather, William Mitchell, in the Van Loo mansion. Mrs. Van Loo was said to be a spy for the North. Yes, and how many stories do we hear about uh, a black woman being raised in this kind of environment in the 1860s and 70s, perhaps being influenced by the conversations that she heard about freedom and equality. So I believe she could have been very influenced equally by her mother and by Elizabeth Van Loo. Her mother was forced into destitution and was able to form a laundry service that Maggie helped her with. Absolutely, and I believe that's uh, Maggie Walker's first uh, experience with understanding business. You've written that she later said, helping her mother and delivering the folded, cleaned clothes to wealthy homes helped her understand even better the tremendous gap between the poor and the rich, the black and the white. Yes. One of the things that, that Maggie Walker really understood is when you develop businesses, you can assist 
so many people with their family lives because when people are able to work uh, decent jobs and earn a livable wage, that is a life-changing experience for families. And it's a lesson we can learn today about business development in poor neighborhoods. What sort of schooling did she have? This would have been in the 1880s, not long after the Civil War. Absolutely. There was one school for black students in the city of Richmond. It was called Armstrong Normal School, and it was a training school for primary and secondary school teachers. She became a teacher after school. She taught for three years, but when she married, she was required by state law to leave teaching and become a mother and housewife. Which irritated her. Uh, She believed (laughs) that uh, men did not have those kinds of constraints, and so women should not have those constraints either. And she had to relinquish her position as a teacher. So what was it that led her out of this domestic life and into the world of banking? Well, I do believe it started with the Independent Order of St. Luke. Uh, It administered social services to sick people, to elderly people, provided food, and she ascended to the role as Right Worthy Grand Secretary Treasurer in 1899. And so I believe that her experience provided her with the experience of running a business conglomerate because under her leadership, the order grew to over 100,000 people in 22 states and the District of Columbia, and it employed hundreds of people in different businesses, such as the St. Luke's Emporium, which was a department store. Uh, They had a regalia department, a printing shop, a newspaper, which was named the St. Luke's Herald, and then, of course, what she is really most notably known for, the St. Luke's Penny Savings Bank. What is a regalia store? She was very connected to the Richmond black clergy, so there were robes and other kinds of uniforms that were made for persons who worked in, in certain industries. And this is very significant because so many other establishments in the city of Richmond simply were not patronizing the black community. And so having a regalia department allowed the emporium to then meet the needs of working class blacks who needed a uniform in order to to go to work. And so Mrs. Walker's role in the city of Richmond is incredibly important because she attended to those economic needs during a uh, a time period when the Richmond City Council and those established white politicians and white business persons were absolutely disinterested in doing so. It's interesting she created a department store. Why was that important for the black community? Well, many department stores in Richmond would not treat black customers with respect, with dignity. Oftentimes, if you were a woman and you would walk into a store and you wanted to try on a hat or try on a a dress, if you were black, you were not permitted to do that, or you had to uh, go through a series of indignities to try on clothes or a hat or a pair of shoes or to pay more, or if you wanted to perhaps buy something on credit, well, that wouldn't work because that was no such thing for, for many black patrons. That kind of experience infuriated the community. And I'm sure Mrs. Walker must have experienced some of that herself as a woman. 
She also led a successful boycott of the Richmond trolley or streetcar. What was that about? Transportation was segregated. It could also be an experience that would be terrifying and violent. One could be thrown off of a streetcar. And so Mrs. Walker and and some other leaders grew tired of that kind of experience and decided they would boycott the streetcar company in in the city of, of Richmond, very similar to what we would know years later with Mrs. Rosa Parks. When you are paying for a service, when you are simply attempting to go about your day working or raising your children or attending to business and having to be subjected to such violent, terrifying acts, it puts you in a frame of mind that you decide you are going to address it. It actually lasted two years. People walked rather than take the Richmond streetcar. Well, that was successful. And so what I find in history is there's a push-pull effect. And so when one aspect of life is <laughs> become successful, <laughs> then there are other aspects about life, your, your, your living, your experience, that seems not to move anywhere or is met with great indifference or hatred. And so whereas that boycott experience, that protest experience was successful, there were other aspects that continued to be unsuccessful. So an example would be uh, Emporium. The St. Luke's Emporium, uh, which was the department store, started in 1905, but was met with great resistance from the white establishment. And it, it only lasted for six years. It closed in 1911 because those persons did not want that department store. It pulled away black customers from their own stores. They often sent letters to retailers in in New York City, encouraging them not to sell whole good products to the St. Luke's Emporium. And so these are uh, tandem experiences that the black community has had uh, for for decades. You you find success on one hand, but then you find repression uh, on on the other. In a paper that you co-authored about Maggie Walker's life and her leadership, you quote her saying, We realize that our family, the Negro race, is spending more than a quarter of a million dollars every week, and spending that money with a family which will not recognize us as citizens, will not employ our fathers or our mothers, will not give our sisters or brothers the slightest chance to be benefited by the stream of living water, which we continually furnish daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, and that without ceasing we are going to see if we can try and turn the course of that almighty stream of dollar and see if we can till our own barren lands, feed our own hungry, and clothe our own naked. 1909, Maggie Walker. Wow, and uh, if you didn't say the year... I would venture to say that just sounds like it's so applicable uh, today. Very reflective, unfortunately, of a race-based experience that has shaped and framed uh, not only the state of Virginia, but our country. How would you characterize your racial experience having grown up in Richmond? I bring a collective experience to the table as a native Richmonder. And so hearing the stories of, of my parents and their experiences 
of my grandparents and even the great-grandparents that I knew, those great aunts and uncles that I knew. Uh, Richmond uh, was uh, a very segregated city. Seeing uh, the impact of certain policies passed, especially after massive resistance policies of, of, the, of the late 50s, which attempted to stop school desegregation, and seeing people leave the city, move out, white people leaving, white flight, and some blacks, more middle-class black people leaving. You then have uh, local news coverage that uh, were not necessarily impartial and, and understanding about poverty, especially black poverty, and did not uh, show respect to those black leaders, both clergy and political leaders who continued the struggle with the ascension of the first black mayor uh, elected Henry Marsh uh, in the 70s. And as a child watching that kind of struggle, it, it's tough to not feel a sense of irritation uh, when people talk about the very negative aspects about the city of Richmond because it's very much connected to economic development or the lack thereof. Maggie Walker died in 1934, but I understand your grandfather knew her. He did. My maternal grandfather worked different odd jobs. Uh, he did not finish formal education. In working one of those odd jobs uh, as a delivery boy, he met Mrs. Magdalena Walker. Until the day he died, he reveled in meeting the legendary Magdalena Walker. In fact, my mother graduated from Maggie Walker High School. And so... Yes, this woman was legend uh, in our family. Were you able to attend the grand unveiling of the statue to Maggie Walker in downtown Richmond? I was out of town, and so, of course, I had many childhood friends who took beautiful pictures of the statue and sent them to me. And then I was able to go to the statue myself, visit it, and take my own pictures in August. Do you like it? I love it. I love it. It is her. I believe it, it, it yeah. shows her in, in her strength uh, as a mature woman, in her glory as a leader. I absolutely love the depiction of Mrs. Walker. Have you been following the national conversation about what to do with monuments to the Confederacy? Many of them were erected during the Jim Crow era. Richmond has so many, especially along the beautiful Monument Avenue. Yes. Uh, it's a tough conversation to listen to. Monument Avenue was always this, and it still is, this picturesque, beautiful landscaped avenue with beautiful churches, mansions. Uh, in fact, when my father was a college student at Virginia Union University, uh, one of his jobs was uh, a caretaker at one of those mansions. And he hmm. worked as a caretaker a as he worked his way through, through college. It was always this, this grand place of, of opulent wealth because you would then leave Monument Avenue and go to other parts of, of the city and you could definitely compare. <laughs> uh, the difference was stark, is stark, is still stark, yes. It feels that something is afoot in Richmond these days. It's a very different racial feeling you have in the city, I think, nowadays than one had perhaps when you were growing up in the 60s. I, I do 
believe that that is the case, but I also believe that, again, there is a push-pull <laughs> effect. So if we were to look at the city of Richmond there, there's a great deal of, of growth with uh, new forms of businesses and creative energies, the growth of Virginia Commonwealth University in downtown Richmond. But I see something also differently. I still see communities in Northside and Church Hill uh, not benefiting from that kind of economic growth. I see Virginia Union University, a private black historical university, somewhat excluded and marginalized, not having monies poured into that campus. I see black churches experiencing a depletion of their membership because you have black people who have essentially moved out of the city because of the presence of concentrated ghetto poverty, creating certain social conditions that are undesirable, and there's just no development in those areas. That's where it gets tough for me because I still see people, good people, experiencing tough situations because of their racial identity. And so it's tough for me to talk about uh, Richmond in all glowing terms when I go to certain neighborhoods where friends I grew up with live and they work every day, they work hard, they take care of their families, but we see certain situations around them that makes it really tough to totally praise uh, what's happening in, in my home city, my, my home city that I love and will always love. Well, Dr. Kalita Fairfax, thank you for talking with me today on With Good Reason. Thank you for having me. I'm grateful. Thank you. Dr. Kalita Nichols Fairfax is an associate professor of social work at Norfolk State University. She's co-author of an article on Maggie Lena Walker and African-American community development. Coming up next, a walking tour of historic markers and the stories they don't tell. As Confederate monuments across the nation are coming down or being modified, some cities and towns are rethinking the message they convey to tourists History is one of the main reasons tourists visit Fredericksburg, Virginia, and that history tends to focus on the Civil War. With good reason, associate producer Kelly Libby went to Fredericksburg and talked with a geographer about what the markers say and what they're leaving out. I wanted to start here um, because this has been the site of some of the main controversies over Fredericksburg's historical landscape in the past year. This is Stephen Hanna, a professor of geography at the University of Mary Washington. And we're standing in front of what looks like a lump of concrete the size of a tree stump. Uh, we're standing at the corner of William Street and Charles Street, and this in front of us, this two and a half foot roundish stone, um, is Fredericksburg's slave auction block. I have to admit, I probably wouldn't have noticed it had Hannah not pointed it out. It's so small. It's very small, and look around. What do you see that relates to this block? Uh, <laughs> nothing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we have a very small bronze plaque that says auction block 
Fredericksburg's principal auction site in pre-Civil War days for slaves and property. The plaque on this auction block is just one of the markers documented in a mapping project by Hannah and his students. The project has documented a total of 224 markers, but this auction block, it's only one of nine that mentions slavery or emancipation. And even though it's an authentic artifact of the antebellum period, it's not what you'd describe as impressive. You can argue that maybe we shouldn't ever make it impressive because it's shame, it's pain, it's, you know, my ancestors systematically oppressing other Americans' ancestors. What do you do with that? It's why it's always called the tough stuff of American memory. There's no easy solution. So Fredericksburg, like localities all over the country, did something else instead. Some of the most prominent Confederate monuments, statues of Robert E. Lee in Richmond, for example, were installed during the late 1800s and early 1900s. But Confederate monuments pop up much later in the 20th century, too, during the 1960s which is, of course, better known as the Civil Rights Era. And so there was a lot of effort to put up markers and name schools and fly the old Confederate flag as a defensive response to um, the narrative of civil rights and the narrative of segregation and unequal treatment of African Americans. We're standing in front of the Richard Kirkland Memorial, which was installed in 1965. text here says, In memoriam Richard Rowland Kirkland, and then the main inscription reads, At the risk of his life, this American soldier of sublime compassion brought water to his wounded foes at Fredericksburg. The fighting men on both sides of the line called him the Angel of Marie's Heights. You'll notice that it does say CSA, but nowhere is the actual word Confederate even spelled out. He is identified first and foremost as an American, as a brave person, as a person of compassion. Um, In some ways, it's more impressive than than most Confederate monuments anywhere because it's so human. And that's one of the reasons why this will never get the same controversy as a statue of Stonewall Jackson or Robert E. Lee because it's about compassion. It's about a human moment. Yeah, he, one soldier is holding the hand of another soldier, and he's kind of got his uh, back resting on his knee while he's giving him water. Yeah. It speaks to humanity. It speaks to caring for somebody even when you're supposedly foes with them. This is all about overcoming sectional feelings you know, reuniting white Southerners and white Northerners. You know, because we can glorify bravery, we can glorify um, taking care of somebody else even if they are different from you. But in this case, the only difference is what uniform they're wearing. Because what we choose to put into the landscape is very selective. And the choice of memorializing the battle, but not the causes of the war, 
hides that history and those connections from us. The fact that you won't find any of these interpretive panels about anything to do with Reconstruction means we have hid everything that happened from 1865 almost until the Civil Rights era where we have the one sign about the Civil Rights era from history. So there's 80 years of systematic um, segregation and racism that is absent from the history and makes it much harder for us to make connections to how the antebellum era still matters to our society today. Stories of the Civil War are the most visible on Fredericksburg's landscape, especially the Battle of Fredericksburg. Of the 224 markers dotting Hannah's map, 98 of them describe things like troop movements and how townspeople experienced the war. But down the street from the slave auction block, there is a site that commemorates the Emancipation Proclamation. And you can see that we have a very, very small statue here. The statue was put here by the Episcopal Church in 2013. It's a sculpture of a figure releasing a dove, and it's placed outside the town's history museum along with a small plaque. If you look at this, again, very, very small amount of text, it commemorates the Emancipation Proclamation, of course, Abraham Lincoln's um, proclamation declaring that any slaves who were in Confederate-controlled territory at that point in January 1863 would be freed. It doesn't say anything about local history. It doesn't say that in summer of 1862, 10,000 enslaved women and men escaped through Fredericksburg. The Union controlled Fredericksburg in the summer of 1862 and people ran from plantations, from businesses, from wherever they were enslaved into Fredericksburg. And then they were transported by train up to Aquia Harbor where then they often got onto boats, ships, and went up to um, Washington. Um, and so there were communities of former enslaved Fredericksburg residents who ended up creating new communities up in Washington, D.C. The stories are there, and they're important stories, and people can know about them, can learn about them, can go online and read about them. But they cannot just happen upon them. And that's what I, I'm critical of. And I think that, you know, for financial reasons, this is what they did, mostly, I think. You know, it's expensive. I don't, and again, I'm not at all disparaging the intent and the effort but there needs to be some space to, I think, be able to say something about what prompted the placement of this statue. And it, they missed an opportunity to not just celebrate the Emancipation Proclamation, but to celebrate the efforts of African Americans to free themselves prior to it that happened right here. As for the auction block, Hannah says after August 12th, there was disagreement about what to do with it. Because for some people, especially black residents of Fredericksburg, it's a reminder of a painful past. For now, it remains in place, mostly uninterpreted. For With Good Reason, I'm Kelly Libby.
Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods and by the University of Virginia Health System, a National Cancer Institute-designated cancer center researching and developing the treatments of tomorrow. UVAHealth.com. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. Allison Quantz is our senior producer. Elliot Majerzik is our producer. Kelly Libby is our interim associate producer. Jeannie Palin handles listener services. And our intern is Georgiana Reed. For the podcast, go to iTunes or withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.